Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. In 1971, there began in Rochester, New York, a series of hideous murders, cases that offered the starkest of contrast between good and evil, perfectly innocent victims, perfectly evil predators. The three victims were little girls, each named with the same first and last initial. Each, the legend said, had been dumped in a town that also began with that letter. The victims had all been last seen in an urban setting and their lifeless bodies were found raped and carelessly dumped along a rural roadside, strangled by ligature. Local girls with a litter of names were on high alert and told to be vigilant. The little ones didn't quite get it, but they sensed it, something in their mother's tighter grip on their little hand or the way mom never relaxed when they were out of doors. The older ones looked at maps and guessed where their own lifeless bodies would be discovered in a ditch. No one wondered why the initials were important, what it all meant. They understood one thing. It was terrifying. The book that we're featuring this evening is Nightmare in Rochester, The Double Initial Murders, with my special guest, journalist and author, Michael Benson. Welcome, welcome back to the program, and thank you very much for this interview, Michael Benson. Hey, thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much once again. Always uh, interesting, and the inaugural, the opening debut of our program true murder on spreaker so thank you very much for this nightmare in rochester congratulations on the new platform thank you very much um let's talk about as you write your fascination with evil stems from a june 25th 1966 disappearance tell us about this and why this is important to your entire true crime and writing career sure uh when i was nine years old My babysitter, Georgianne Formicola, and her friend, Kathy Bernhardt, from down the road, uh, went swimming in a swimming hole behind my house in a rural section of Monroe County, New York, uh, town of Chile. And they didn't come back. Uh, They were last seen on one side of my house, and their bodies were found a month later on the other side, and they'd been horribly dismembered and perhaps cannibalized. It was a real Jack Jack the Ripper crime scene. Uh, and right. It was just terrifying to the community. Um, I grew up with a fascination for psycho killers because of that. Uh, I tried to, in, in an amateur way, try to figure out who did it as a kid and as a teenager and as a young adult. And I, it's no coincidence, I became a true crime writer. And in 2011, I teamed up with private investigator Don Tubman and Kathy Bernhardt's mom, Alice Bernhardt, and we started a fresh investigation, uh, developed a new suspect, and uh, uh, sad to say, Alice passed away a few weeks back uh, at age 92, and uh, hopefully we gave her a little bit of closure with the book that came out, uh, The Devil of Genesee Junction. Now, that book came out two days after my own mom passed away, so I was, it was with a heavy heart that I, I started doing uh, publicity material, publicity appearances for it. And the first one I did was at the Scottsville Free Library uh, in the town where I had gone to high school. And a lot of old friends came out, and the place was packed. And after I gave my little presentation, somebody said, well, what are you going to do for an encore? And I said, well, I think I am going to take on the double initial murders. And I just sort of set it off the top of my head because I had been thinking about it a lot. But it seemed like a big chunk at that moment, still grieving over my loss of my mom. Uh, but the reaction was just ecstatic. It made everybody very, very happy. So I knew I had to do it. Um, and about five years after 
my girls and child I were killed, uh, the series of new murders started in the city of Rochester, which caused such a hysteria in the community that in, in some senses uh, the, the, the Genesee Junction murders were a little bit forgotten. But uh, there's, there's, there's no describing how the murders of these three little girls uh, terrified everyone, uh, largely because of uh, the first victim. And uh, they were all 10 and 11 years old. And Carmen Cologne was the first victim. She disappeared on Tuesday afternoon, November 16th, 1971. Uh, autumn day, uh, school day. Temperature was in the mid-50s. Now, Carmen's mother was only 24 years old. She'd been 14 when she had Carmen. And in recent years, Carmen had been living with her grandfather, Felix, and his wife, Candida, on a side street in the Bull's Head section of Rochester, which, which was once a thriving shopping district, um, but by 1971 had deteriorated and become populated with transients, ex-cons, drug addicts, and mental cases. Um, so I mean, little, little Carmen didn't really speak much English. She was mentally handicapped. Uh, she understood more than ever. According to her teachers, she was learning but she still didn't know very much English. She'd lived in Puerto Rico for much of her life, and she had a limited ability to explain her feelings or her experiences, but she was improving by all accounts. She was a tiny girl, four feet tall, 65 pounds. Her playmates were her cousins and sometimes neighbor kids, but they spoke only Spanish. And on that afternoon, about 4.30 in the afternoon, Carmen's mom sent Carmen around the corner to a drugstore on Rochester's Main Street West, to have a prescription filled for her baby's sister who had an earache. Now, Carmen left, turned around the corner onto the busy thoroughfare, and never returned. Now, on previous occasions when, when Carmen had been asked to run errands, uh, her grandfather had stood on the front porch. There was a candy, penny candy store up the block, and he could stand on the porch and watch her go and watch her come back. And when right. she went to the drugstore, and she'd done this a couple times before, he would walk behind her. And she'd come out of the drugstore and she'd run past him and then he would tail her back home again. And by those trips, she, was, she learned a careful and small sense of independence. But on this day, she forgot to tell her grandfather she was going. She grabbed the prescription and headed out the door and found herself alone on the streets. Uh, the guy on duty in the drugstore took the prescription said, uh, this, is, this is a Medicaid uh, prescription. It's going to take about a half hour to fill out some forms. Come back then. Almost impossible to tell if Carmen understood any of that. But she left and was never seen again, uh, other than one horrible moment about an hour later. So anyway, when Carmen didn't return home and Uncle Ben began searching the neighborhood, the police weren't called until 7.50. So she'd been gone for about three hours before the police were informed. But during that time, about an hour after her abduction, um, hours before the police had been notified, Carmen apparently wriggled free from her abductor or abductors and jumped out of the car. She was naked from the waist down, holding her pants in one hand, and she ran hysterically down the shoulder of the Western Expressway, now known as Interstate 490. She ran toward heavy oncoming rush hour traffic, screaming for help, and was seen by dozens of motorists as they approached Exit 3 heading towards Churchville. Now, some of those drivers saw a car behind her backing up toward her. Some saw a parked car and an adult running after her. Scores of cars drove by observing the child in distress, but no one stopped. And Carmen was presumably caught and dragged back. Now, every witness seemed to see something different. Uh, most agreed it was a luxury car, Cadillac, Ford LTD, uh, Lincoln Continental, something like that. And you have to remember, people don't have cell phones. And they're on an expressway going 65 miles an hour in a hurry to get home. And right. everybody thought the same thing. If, if they recognized that there was a crisis at all, and some didn't, they mm -hmm. thought, well, somebody behind me will be in a better situation to take care of it. And they had to wait until they got home before they could call the police. And some did. Some got home and said, you know, I saw a really creepy thing on the side of the road. I think maybe you should look into it. But by that time, of course, it was too late. Psychologists were kind to the motorists. They said, uh, 
you know, the site was too bizarre to be processed swiftly. And, you know, I've, I've done a lot of thinking about this over the years. And it occurs to me that if someone had stopped, it probably would have prevented the murder. But there's at least a 50-50 that they would have helped the adult catch the child. Um, all the adult would have to say is, you know, that's my niece. She's, you know, autistic or what, you know, whatever he wanted right. to say. And the adult would immediately stop thinking that this is a crime and help the adult catch the, the hysterical little girl who has taken mm-hmm. her pants off. Anyway, that's that's the last time we see uh, we see Carmen alive. Um, now you you talk no. about that yeah. there is there is a car description or there are several car descriptions. Tell us about what type of car that at least police are at, uh, alerting for, and also how and talk about uh, Carmen's uncle Miguel and yeah. how he comes to be a suspect. Right. Well, as I said, that they were pretty, witnesses were pretty much in agreement that it was a luxury car. Uh, it was a big boat of a car. And on the cover of our book, we have a, a nice Cadillac, which we've put mm-hmm. in black and white, so you can't tell that it's bright red. I don't think the car was bright red. Um, and one fellow that that we are, are most familiar with, Don, spoke to him in person. I spoke to his widow. He passed away a few years ago. It was a fellow named Nick Zook. And uh, mm-hmm. he remained plagued by his thoughts of what if uh, he was one of the guys that drove by. He thought the car was a Lincoln Continental, saw the little girl, and saw an adult get out of the passenger side of the car, thought it was a woman, and head, uh, head towards the tail of the car in pursuit. So that would indicate two people in the car, at least one of them a woman. Um, now this is very different from all of the descriptions of cars that we get for the other two victims. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Carmen is found uh, after school on Thursday, two days after her disappearance, in a desolate section of the town of Riga. Two teenage boys out joyriding on a uh, 80cc Suzuki motorcycle, and they found Carmen's naked and exposed body in a deep ditch that ran along the side of the road. Uh, her body had been clearly sexually abused and was covered with fingernail scratches. Maybe something you might expect from a woman attacker. Right. Uh, the head was against a large rock, and the, the boys got the impression that the body had been placed at that spot rather than rolled down the incline, although they weren't experts. The sheriff said he believed the girl had been slain elsewhere and then transported by car to the dump site. Uh, police later found Carmen's pants near the spot where she'd been seen running, but her underwear remained forever missing. Now, to get to Uncle Miguel... As I had said, um, Carmen's mom had Carmen when she was 14 years old. And the father, biological father, was a uh, fellow named uh, <clears throat> Justiano Colon, who was 32 years old. Yeah. And uh, his much younger brother subsequently, sub- sub- subsequently became Carmen's mother's boyfriend. And he drove a new-to-him Cadillac. And we, we, we recently, uh, I had uh, two beautiful ladies, uh, Deb Sperling and Christine Green, interviewed Carmen's mom and Carmen's half-sister. And we found out that you know, Carmen came to be because of a swift and romance-free tryst with, with a much older man. Um, now, not long after Carmen's death, Uncle Miguel splits. He takes off from Rochester, goes back to Puerto Rico. Somebody says, where are you going? He says, I did something wrong. I've got to get away. And this alerts the police to him as, as a suspect. And plus his car is found to have Carmen's doll inside it. And the trunk of the car has been washed out with a detergent that wasn't used by the car dealership that sold him the car. So, I mean, a, a lot of police figure this is it we've got him so they go to puerto rico in march of 1972 four months after the murder they find him they return him to monroe county so he can be interrogated and uh sheriff skinner himself sheriff for decades and decades old sheriff big big man lean on guys to get him to confess but miguel hangs tough he says i didn't have anything to do with carmen's death 
Um, what, what we found out from the family was that he did say that he had done something wrong, but the thing he had done wrong, he thought, was he was living with Carmen's mom who was on food stamps and somebody, possibly his older brother and Carmen's biological father, told him that you better get away from here. They're going to arrest you for fraud. They catch you been living with a woman on welfare. So this, on purpose or inadvertently, makes Miguel look like a suspect, more so than he would otherwise. Um, And and, and that's pretty much the the way it stayed. There was no concrete evidence linking Miguel to the crime. Um, and the the women we've talked to, the Cologne women we've talked to, are insistent he's not the guy. That he was, you know, he loved Carmen, was a, sort of a stepfather of sorts, and uh, wasn't him, which isn't to say it isn't you know, somehow involved with the dysfunction in the Cologne family, but they defend him very strongly. You talk about also what, that they demanded a lie detector test, and he also passed. He did. And it just yes. as you, yeah, you say, just not enough evidence to, to ever take it to court at all. But well, that's that's right. Although, you know, at least one investigator wanted to throw it to the grand jury and see what happened, but right. that never happened. And then there's 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 a year and four months of quiet, and the Carmen Cologne case fades away from the front pages but then it starts up again in April 2nd 1973 with Wanda Walkowitz tell us a little bit about uh, Wanda Lee Walkowitz and any similarities to Carmen Colon well yeah uh, you find that all of the all of the victims came from lower income families uh, they all came from broken homes. Moms were all accepting, uh, you know, assistance, and they all went to. Uh, they were all Catholics, and they were all ten or eleven years old. They were all walking alone on the street when they disappeared. Uh, but other than that, I mean, in, in, in the broad stroke sense, there seemed to be a lot of similarities. But the closer you look, the fewer similarities there were. There, there wasn't anybody who knew all three, for example. And boy, have people looked. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so Wanda, Wanda was a, a redheaded fifth grader, Rochester School Number 8. Um, it was a rainy Monday late afternoon. She's 11. And she is running an errand for her mother, Joyce, who's a widower and a little bit of a layabout who has Wanda doing a lot of the chores for her. Wanda's had to change schools because of a truancy problem, and the reason she's not going to school is because she's needed at home to take care of things, because mom can't. So since Joyce Walkwitz, the mom, had been widowed, she'd been through a series of men, and uh, they lived about a half block from Conkey Avenue on Rochester's east side, which is another section of Rochester that had seen better days. Wanda was four foot seven inches tall. She weighed 77 pounds, bright red hair, like you could spot her a mile away. And her mom gave her a shopping list and said, this is what we need for dinner. And Wanda left for the store, as she had done many, many times before. So she walked the three blocks to the corner store on Conkey Avenue. She's wearing a blue and white dress with white socks and sneakers, a red and green checked coat. She bought the groceries and was returning home with a big, full shopping bag in her arms when she disappeared. Now, several witnesses saw Wanda leave the deli with her bag. Uh, at one point, she stopped at the uh, school aid fence, and she used the fence to help brace the bag and get a better grip on it, and then continued walking towards home. She had friends who saw her, looked away, looked back, and she was gone. Now, unlike Carmen, there was an indication that Wanda had been targeted earlier by a creep on the street. Right. Um, on, on the Saturday night at 10 p.m., uh, only two days before her abduction, Wanda and her friend Linda 
are followed by a stranger as the girls are walking uh, the Conkey Avenue area after dark. The stalking incident was considered so serious that Linda's mom filed a report with police who came but found no sign of the guy. The guy apparently chased them all the way to Wanda's house, and they ran up to her upstairs apartment, and the guy came into the building and was standing at the bottom of the stairs when he finally gave up and left. So it was considered a serious incident. Mm -hmm. Uh, The girls reported that they hadn't gotten a good look at his face because he hid behind a bush when they spotted him. And the only detail that they, uh, they noticed was they had a buckle on his shoe. And we found Linda. Don and I found Linda. And, uh, of course, now she's a grown woman. And I suggested to her that she'd seen the guy. And she said that, the, you know, she suspected that was true. She knows that after that incident, after that Saturday night, Mom said, that's it, you're not going outside alone anymore. But, unfortunately, Wanda was never told that. And two days later, she was uh, snatched off the street. Now, unlike... Michelle and Carmen, Wanda's found very quickly. By the time the newspapers are ready with the story about her her being missing, they have to change everything because her body has been found. Now at 10.15 in the morning, it's the morning after her disappearance, on an access road in the town of Webster, a state trooper found Wanda's body face down, thrown over a railing, and allowed to roll down an embankment. Now, the obvious similarities between Carmen and Wanda, both girls were alone on the street running errands. Uh, oddly, they both it involved walks that involved one right-hand turn, two streets. Uh, both had successfully reached their destination and had left when they were snatched. Uh, but there were differences. Wanda was bruised but not scratched. Carmen had been found exposed, whereas Wanda had been redressed. Right. One had been strangled face-to-face. The other had been strangled from behind. That's a major psychological difference. That's that's a difference in modus operandi right there that's uh, very stark. What about contents in the stomach? What What about contents in the stomach, and what does that indicate to police? Yes, well, Wanda had been fed by her killer. The Monroe County Medical Examiner discovered custard in the girl's stomach but it was a mystery where she'd gotten it. Now, the assumption was that she must have been given the food by her killer. Uh, Her mother insisted that couldn't have been the case because Wanda had a nervous stomach and she wouldn't have been able to keep it down under the stress of the attack. But who knows? Somewhere between when she left for that store and when she was found dead, she had eaten custard, and the best theory is that the killer gave it to her. Um, Another difference is that no one saw the killer from then on. No one who no ever saw the killer's car from then on uh, mistook it for a luxury car. A uh, witness called the police hotline and said he saw a white man of medium height forcing a red-haired girl into a light-colored Dodge Dart on Conkey Avenue. Um, and that would start a series of sightings that all involved uh, what I like to call piece-of-crap American cars that in, in sharp contrast to the the Lincoln LTD or Cadillac that was seen in Carmen's case. Now there are suspects arise. There are tip lines. There's many, many tips come in. They look at a young man in um, California um, that has an article clipping in his wallet of the story. There are people that look good. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that suspect that they eliminate eventually and profile that's created by a Dr. David Barry. Oh boy. Well, <clears throat> David Barry's profile doesn't really come into it until after Michelle Mayen's crime. Okay. We have, to, we have to get through Michelle first before we can get to that stuff. Okay. Uh, and there, there wasn't as long of a gap this time between crimes that November, uh, almost exactly two years after Carmen's attack, uh, Fear grew to panic in Rochester. The Monday after Thanksgiving, 10-year-old Michelle Mayenza disappeared um, in the Webster Avenue area of Rochester on the east side. Michelle was chubby and slow. She was a pupil at School 33 where she was cruelly bullied. Uh, Her last day at school had been a rough one. She'd been teased relentlessly during recess, 
so severely that she had to leave her classroom and spend most of the afternoon crying in the nurse's office. Now, to make matters worse, she and her primary tormentor had been made to stay after school. So when Michelle's mom came to pick Michelle and her sister up, Michelle wasn't released. So mom walked the sister home and left Michelle to fend for herself. Michelle walked in the Market View section of Rochester. That's on, it's over by Webster Avenue on the east side. And as was true of Carmen and Wanda, she disappeared while walking alone after school but before dinner. Now, after her bad day, Michelle left school somewhere between 3.20 and 3.30 in the afternoon and made it to a spot at the intersection of Webster Avenue and Ackerman Street, at which point there's a series of witnesses. We have a fairly good idea of what happens because people see Michelle. And our first witness is a little girl that we call Cynthia because we're protecting her. And uh, Cynthia saw Michelle at the corner of Ackerman and, uh, and Webster. And from that point, Michelle headed up a stretch of street that went to the shopping plaza um, where Michelle's uncle Phil saw her, offered her a ride home, and she declined. Now, only a few minutes after that, Cynthia sees Michelle a second time, and this time she's in a beige Ford speeding recklessly away from the area, cutting the corner from Ackerman onto Webster Avenue so tightly that Cynthia had to step back to to avoid being hit. Um, And another car came, slammed on the brakes to avoid an accident, and the car with Michelle in it disappeared heading towards the northeast. Now, police, Cynthia's a little girl. She knows Michelle because she used to go to school with her, but police are not taking her as seriously as they might if she were an adult until the motorist who slammed on her brakes comes forward and says, no, that really happened. Uh, it was a beige Ford Pinto. Another you know, piece of crap American car. Sure. So we found and interviewed Cynthia. And she's a very important witness because she saw the killer's face. It was a long time ago, but she saw him. And we, uh, you know, we're, we later showed her a bunch of pictures, and she picked the one she liked best, but I'll get to that. Now, sure. th- now the next time we hear about Michelle, she's at a fast food restaurant uh, in, in an eastern suburb. A woman pulled into a Carol's fast food restaurant in, in Rochester back in the 70s. We had Carol's before we had McDonald's. The same thing. The woman pulls into the fast food restaurant, but there's a there's a song on the radio she likes, so she doesn't get out of the car right away, and she notices that there's a chubby little girl sitting in the car next to her, uh, which is light colored, possibly beige, possibly tan, which she thinks is a Plymouth Duster, either 1971 or 72, you know, Pinto Duster. Uh, medical examiner later, later gave this witness credibility by finding a fast food hamburger in Michelle's stomach. Um, Again, the killer had fed his victim before killing her. Now, the woman eventually did get out of her car and go to the the restaurant, and as she was doing so, a man carrying a bag of food and a soft drink came, came back and got in the car with the little girl in it. So she got a look at the killer's face as well. Now, there's a third witness, and this is maybe 15, 20 minutes after that, and this witness stopped because a car on a country road in the town of Macedon was parked off the shoulder. And in the car was a man and a girl. The man tried to hide the girl and angrily told the good Samaritan he was just trying to change a flat tire and to please go away. That guy also got a, a look at the guy's face. And so out of this, we get a composite drawing of our suspect. We have a pretty good idea what this guy looks like. Um, they put the face that is drawn and a photograph of a, a police officer who's dressed as the killer had been dressed. So they have a, a composite that's mostly photographed with a drawn face on it, and this goes in the newspapers, and apparently looks exactly like everybody's ex-husband and uh, deviant dad. So there's lots, lots of leads at that point, and most of them lead nowhere. Um, what about a connection now, unlike, between... Yeah. What a, what about police making any kind of connection between any of the murders? 
as done by the same perpetrator. Well, the Monroe County Medical Examiner uh, and the people who have been at Michelle and Wanda's crime scenes say the same guy killed Wanda and Michelle. No doubt in their mind. And we don't need to know why. I mean, they're, they're keeping that part secret to, you know, weed out false confessors. But there are dramatic differences between Wanda and Michelle's crime scene and Carmen's. So it, it, that one thing, the one thing that holds all three crime scenes together and supports the theory of one man doing, doing it all is that white animal hairs were found on all three bodies. Incredible. Yeah. So uh, anyway, after a couple of days, Michelle's fully clothed and lifeless body was found in a ditch about eight feet from the north shoulder of a deserted road in the town of Masset. It was partially on its side in front and found by a volunteer fireman from neighboring Walworth. Now, the killer had dropped the body at the top of an incline at the side of the road and rolled it down. Michelle's coat was missing. Now, as was true with Carmen and Wanda, the thing that you notice by visiting the site is this is an unusually deserted stretch of road. Uh, the road was two miles long, had 10 houses on it. The nearest house was in another town. Um, so, there was one, yeah, the, after Michelle's murder, people first noticed the initials thing. But it was just considered an oddity, a weird coincidence, and it didn't become part of the story until a local psychiatrist affiliated with a top Rochester University uh, published his theory in the daily newspaper, Democrat and Chronicle, and said that the sets of double initials, CC, WW, and MM, was an indication that the killer was a criminal mastermind who knew the girls ahead of time so he could pick ones with alliterative names. Um, the psychiatrist even bent geography a little bit. He said Carmen had been left in Churchville. Uh, it was actually Riga outside of Churchville. Uh, Wanda in Webster and Michelle in Macedon. Interesting thing here is that this theory instantly becomes the accepted fact in Rochester. Instantly. All of a sudden, it goes from being three murders that are very similar to one another to, boom, they are the double initials murders. It all has to do yes. with the alphabet. Uh, the, the, the psychiatrist says that if you follow the numerology of the letters, that the next victim is going to be GG and found in a town starting with G. Yeah, so, I mean, Michelle was technically found in Macedon, but I've talked to the nearest neighbor, and she said, we live in Walworth. And no one knows where the borderline is, and I don't think the killer knew where the borderline was. So at least the, the, the geography part of the theory, I don't think, washes. It, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit. Um, now, with the exception of the investigators who were guided by evidence and logic, everyone believed the psychiatrist. The initials became the thing, and the killer was given superhuman powers. Not only did he know their names, he knew when they were going to the drugstore, when they were sent shopping by their mother, when they were walking home alone because of detention. And little girls with double initials, as you said in the opening, girls with double initials and their parents were terrified. And, and I find this even more disturbing in a way, but some little girls with different first and last initials and their parents figured they were off the hook. And those little girls were allowed to go to the park without adult supervision. Yeah. You're okay. You, know, you don't have the same first and last initials. The creep doesn't want you. And that and that, yeah. that brings us to to our to our suspects. The the, the first one I guess we, I should talk about is Ken Bianchi, and you know him. Let's uh, let's just stranglers. before we yes before we do that we we should talk about detective detective uh, Fante Grossi, but we're going to have to use yes. this for as an opportunity just to stop for a second to sure. to listen to our sponsor care of new year new health goals build a vitamin routine that's made just for you and your health goals 
There's an online quiz that lets you know exactly what you need. Because 90% of people fall short of FDA recommended guidelines for at least one vitamin or nutrient. Find out where you're lacking with Care Of's online quiz and get back on track to reaching your health goals. It can be really hard to know what vitamins or supplements you should be taking, but Care Of makes it easy to find out what you specifically need to be your healthiest. And a portion of every sale goes towards the Good Plus Foundation, which provides expectant mothers in need with valuable prenatal vitamins. I visit care-of, careof.com, to take care, to take their quiz. To start, I classified myself as informed rather than curious or skeptical. They asked questions about my vitamin-taking history, questions about my lifestyle and health issues, my health goals, dietary questions, all the questions necessary for care of to determine my specific needs, then recommended the proper supplementation and dietary additions backed with the research they used to make their conclusions. Very comprehensive and incredibly instructive quiz. Right now, we're 25, you can get 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins. Go to takecareof.com and enter promo code TRUEMURDER. That's for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins. Go to takecareof.com and enter promo code TRUEMURDER. Now, Michael, we were just about to talk about the suspects that arise mm-hmm. in this case. And now that it has been deemed and been named and entitled the double initial murders, but there is a person that doesn't believe in the profiler's assessment of this at all, and his name is Detective Fontagrossi. So tell us a little bit about this detective and his ideas about what has happened uh, contrary to what the doctor has said, and tell us about the first suspects that arise. Well, Detective Fantagrossi doesn't believe in the double initial thing at all. He doesn't believe in the, the, the towns being meaningful, and he doesn't think that the names of the girls are meaningful. He, he's dealt enough with predator behavior to know that most of these guys are opportunists. They, they may have a plan involving a, a, a neighborhood. I'll cruise this neighborhood today. But what they're basically looking for is a soft target that they can exploit and get away without being seen. And all three of these crimes fit that pattern. Uh, He also believed that Carmen's killer had something to do with the family she was in, uh, whereas Wanda and Michelle's killer was a different fellow. Um, I think that he suspected that Carmen's killer probably was a Spanish speaker um, and that Wanda and Michelle's killer was an English speaker. Now, the, uh, the, the suspect that, that I want to talk about first is uh, you know, Kenneth, Kenneth Bianchi, who later became famous as one of the Hillside Stranglers. And he's, it, it, you know, Rochester is a medium-sized city. At the time, it had about 300,000 people, but it's really a small town in a lot of ways. And Kenny and I went to the same school for a year. When he was in fifth grade, I was in kindergarten at the Holy Family School at Campbell and Ames Street in Rochester, and he, he eventually moved out to Gates, and I moved to Chilai. And uh, I first looked into him involving the 1966 killings because he was so nearby, and eventually came to the conclusion he was probably too young. But he wasn't too young for these crimes. Um, now, he uh, he later went on with his, his late cousin Angelo Bono to kill at least 10 girls and women in the Los Angeles area, 1977 and 78. And Bianchi alone killed two more in the state of Washington before his arrest in January of 79. He was 20 years old when Carmen was killed and he drove a black and white Cadillac, which could have been the car seen off the Western Expressway chasing Carmen Cologne. Now, mm-hmm. following Carmen Cologne's murder, Bianchi was questioned, as were many men who drove Cadillacs, Lincolns, and LTDs. And when Bianchi moved to California a few years later, he told a friend he had to get out of Rochester because cops thought he was the double initial killer. Now, I know several people who were interviewed in that same canvassing, young men who drove their dad's luxury car and were asked where they were when Carmen was seen running down the road. 
but they didn't leave town because of it. And Bianchi didn't even, you know, he hadn't even been put on a suspect list, at least not yet. And yet he later claimed he used his suspect status as an excuse to switch coasts. Now, so I checked all 12 Ken Bianchi victims. Zero had double initials. Not a single one. Eleven of them were grown women. One was a child. Uh, One striking thing is that the method of killing and body disposal is very similar between the double initials and the hillside strangler cases. Uh, He was a strangler, of course, and he rolled bodies down into ditches when he was done with them. Uh, Investigators knew Bianchi and the killers shared some blood characteristics. Now, by July 1981, Bianchi had been referred to by Rochester and Monroe County investigators as a serious suspect. Now, state-of-the-art technology was used during Michelle Mayenz's autopsy. Medical examiner Dr. John Edland uh, tried to find fingerprints on the body itself by blowing iodine vapor across the skin. Now, the vapor lodged on the fats and oils left there by the killer's sweat. And one mark was found on Michelle's neck. A silver-plated piece of metal was pressed onto the area, and the iodine etched a copy of the print onto the metal, which was then photographed with a New York State Police fingerprint camera. It was believed that the print was made mostly by a wrist with a small portion of palm attached. Although the print had some crucial detail in it, it was nonetheless impossible to determine if it had been made by a right or a left wrist. So it's not the greatest but there's something there if you can find a match. Right. Now, Bianchi was considered a serious enough suspect that his palm and wrist prints were taken in jail and compared to the mark found on Michelle's neck, no match. And when DNA science was developed, well, this this is the thing I should probably say first. Before DNA technology came into being in in the 1980s, Tests have been made on the physical evidence for all three double initials cases. And in two of the cases, the evidence had been used up. Uh, They were trying to determine whether or not the killer was a secretor, which was a a key thing back then. 80% of people secrete blood, 20% don't, or the other way around, I'm not even sure. But they had used up the evidence, not knowing that if they just saved a little bit, they just saved a little bit of it, they might have had a case 20 years down the road with better technology, but they didn't. So what we have is we have DNA left from Wanda's killing, but not from Carmen's or Michelle's. Right. We, we don't even know for sure if the DNA was the same for all three. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, and when they eventually did have DNA technology, they determined that Kenny Bianchi was not the person who had raped Wanda Walkowitz. That's all they can tell. You can't really eliminate him as a suspect in all three. Uh, and, of course, there are always going to be many who think Kenny Bianchi had to have been involved in some way. And that's not the first suspect I'm going to say that about. There's, uh, Rochester had its share of creeps back in the day. Now, right around the same time as the double initials killers, there was a second set of serial rapes going on by a guy that was known as the garage rapist. And uh, he was caught on January 1st, 1974, determined to be Dennis Termini. Uh, and he was discovered in the act, raping a woman in a garage. But he ran and committed suicide before he could be arrested. Now, the thing about Termini that a lot of investigators really like is he had white cat hairs in his car. You remember the three, the, the white animal hairs yeah. in all three scenes. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I'm not not privy to as to how. Now, I'm not privy as to how, but I do know that, mm-hmm. according to investigators, they can show that Termini was in the area where Michelle was walking home when she disappeared. So he became a favorite suspect, strong enough so that in 2007, his body was disinterred, a DNA sample was taken, and it failed to match the remaining double initials DNA. Again, yeah. there are veteran cops out there who says, no way, he had to be involved in some way. He's still on my list. Something's up. Now, the guy you were talking about in California earlier, this, this is 
<clears throat> you know, I, I, I wanted to put more about this guy in the book, but eventually it got to be ridiculous because there's so much to put. This is a guy mm-hmm. named Joseph Nazo. He's also known as the California Double Initials Killer, which is weird enough as it is, but he grew up in Rochester, New York. He married a Rochester girl. He married a girl who grew up across the street from my dad. Now, when Rochesterians heard of his arrest, and they, they were convinced that he had to be the guy, all you had to do was look at the, his roster of victims. They were Roxine Rogash, Cheryl Carter, that's a CC, Marina Mitchell, Tracy DeFoya, Pamela Perkins, and most astoundingly, and this is the kicker, another yeah. Carmen Cologne, this one an wow. adult woman. Incredible. Now, everybody has their own limits of what they can accept as a coincidence. Yeah. And I think a lot of people reach their breaking point right there. But yeah. if Nazo is just a guy who's playing, you know, who's, who's paying homage to the Rochester double initials killer, then, then all of this could be separate and different from the Rochester crimes, although still really fascinating. But on the other hand, you've got, investigators from California saying, well, we don't think he ever knew Carmen Cologne's actual name. She was a, a sex worker on the street, uh, usually identified herself by a street name, you know, whether it was Trixie or Tatiana or whatever. She wouldn't have said, hi, I'm Carmen Cologne. So there's a chance he never knew. The chance that it was just a coincidence. Wow. And in a case with so many coincidences. Now, yeah. Nazo's trial is one of the most bizarre I've ever covered. Um, sure. Because not only was he a grade-A creep and weirdo, but he also insisted on defending himself. Now, his cross-examination of his ex-wife deteriorated almost immediately into a marital squabble. And it was a long trial because he left so much evidence. He loved to memorialize all of his nasty habits. He was a photographer. He would seduce women into positions where they could be killed by promising to take pictures of them. You should be a model. I have a camera. I take pictures of models. It was a line that worked. So the women he raped and killed went all the way back to Rochester. And in his notes, it became clear that in some cases he didn't know the name of his victims. He might have known their street name. He may not have known their name at all. He only knew the location. He picked them up. He took note of many things about the crimes body types, he liked legs, amount of resistance the women put up, the number of photos he'd taken, positions he took the photos in. He never once mentioned the alphabet, initials, the significance of the victims' names, or anything similar to that. And his DNA is not a match for the rapist of Wanda Walkowitz. Yeah. So Nazo was convicted and currently resides on California's death row. But how could he not be the guy? <laughs> you so you there, take us yeah yeah go ahead go ahead um, well go ahead so the question is do the initials really matter and, and there are people out there who want to believe the initials matter because that makes the story more fascinating and I will mm-hmm. say to them that there is no evidence that the, that the initials do matter but there's no evidence that they don't um, mm-hmm. to say that all three victims have the same first and last initial is is an obvious statement, but to make the the leap to say that that's the reason they were chosen and killed is a tremendous jump of logic. Yeah. And I've been impressed with the number of Rochester investigators, including Fanagrossi, who thought Carmen was killed by one killer and Wanda Michelle by another and never bought into the initials bit, um, thinking that it was an interesting coincidence, but no more than that. And that yeah. the naso stuff can be chalked up as, you know, one psycho paying homage to another. Yeah. Now, investigators distrusted the noble, double initials theory because what that local shrink and now the public thought, thought was improbable. Not impossible, but improbable. Most people felt the killer predetermined who his victims were going to be based up for bizarre reasons unknown on the way the names were spelled. Now, how did the killer know that Carmen Clone would be going to the drugstore? How did he know Wanda would be going to the store? How did he know Michelle was walking home alone that day instead of with her mother and her sister as usual? The answer is he most likely didn't. 
is cruising around the inner city looking for soft targets. I can't explain the initials, but it might be helpful to note that many girls of that age, born around 1960, had the same first and last initials. I think it's probably a higher percentage than other demographics because they were all born when the two most famous women in the world were movie stars, Marilyn Monroe and Bridget Bardot. And they were referred to on the covers of movie magazines back then as MM and BB. Now, one thing I I want to strongly state for all of your listeners, Dan, uh, if the initials turn out to be a coincidence, it doesn't make the people who did this less evil, and it doesn't make the victims less important. Not at all. It does, however, remove from the killer's resumes superpowers that they didn't have. So I came to the conclusion that, well, maybe, maybe the initials don't matter. Let's take a fresh look at everything and take all of the, the legend out. And that brings me to a fellow named Ted Gibbon. You talk about I, uh, August 3rd, 1974. Um, right. Yes, tell us about Ted Gibbons and how he becomes a big suspect. I, I, I love talking about Ted Gibbon. Um, he is a flat-out pervert pedophile. If he is not the guy, then he is just like the guy, in my opinion. So we can learn things from him, whether or not he's involved in, in one or, or all three or any of these murders. At 1.30 p.m. on Saturday, August 3rd, 1974, 10 months after the murder of Michelle Mayenza, Given drove his car into Lions Park in the Rochester suburb of Gates. Now, if you remember, I said earlier that the, the psychiatrist had said there was a numerology factor and the next victim was going to be GG in, in a town called G. That's well, right. Gates starts with a G. And while in that park, he lured two little girls to the trunk of his car, saying he had baby bunnies in the trunk of his car. And when they got there, he threw them in the trunk and slammed the lid on them. He told me that they were stunned and never had a chance to put up a fight. He drove them to an abandoned house, tied one of them up in the basement, and took the other upstairs to a room with a mattress and sexually attacked her. He then put the girls back in the car, returned them to the park, and set them free. Now, he was caught because people in the car saw the drop-off and got a good description of the car. It was a gold 1965 Plymouth Valiant. The car had distinctive racing stripes with tape that was partially peeling. Then a couple of things happened. First, a cop beat the crap out of Given, who he was, after all, a child rapist, and Given had to be hospitalized for an injured scrotum. And the whole matter turned into a police brutality story in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing was, a reporter asked the Gates police chief, who was only 27 years old at the time and went on to become a, a legendary cop, but at the time he was 27, and the reporter asked him, hey, maybe this is the double initial killer. And the chief said, oh, no, these girls had different first and last initials. Besides, he didn't kill them. He let them go. Um, and there were other differences, too. It wasn't a school day. It was summer vacation. It was a Saturday. Now, maybe it's me, but the similarities were more impressive than the differences. Here's sure. a man, a pedophile predator, cruising for soft targets in his car, snatching them and taking them somewhere to do bad things. Now, Ted admitted to me that he was questioned at the time of, the, of Michelle's murder because of the kind of car he drove. Now, despite the distractions, Given was convicted of attempted rape in the Gates abductions and went away for 10 years. Now, I reviewed Given's criminal record and I found out that he had always been in trouble, uh, been in jail more than he was out. He was a B&E man who liked violating other people's personal space. And those types often evolve into rapists. Sort of makes sense. Right. Um, he was in jail when our Carmen Cologne was murdered, but he was out briefly for both Wanda and Michelle. And at the time of Michelle Mayenza's murder, he was sleeping on his dad's couch on Parcells Avenue, 200 yards from Michelle Mayenza's home. Wow. He was a guy from the neighborhood. And, you know, when we talked to the little girl, Cynthia, who had seen the killer's face, she said, I thought he was a guy from the neighborhood. I thought he was a guy I had seen before, maybe in a pizzeria down the street. 
Anyway, Ted would have been a guy from the neighborhood, just as Cynthia said. And he lived across the street from the kids' favorite pet store, the one that led the county each spring in sales of baby bunnies. Now, I also found, and this is perhaps a coincidence, but terrifying in the same sense, I found that there was a big article in the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle about the pet store that sold the most baby bunnies before Easter every year. Uh, It was about the store across the street from where Ted Given lived. And that story ran the morning of Wanda Walkowitz's abduction. Yeah. Yeah, my head exploded. Anyway, so Given serves 10 years for his crimes in Gates for the, for the double abduction and, and sexual attack. He's released from prison in 1984, returned to Rochester, and eight months later there was another shocking unsolved Rochester murder, that of 14-year-old Wendy Lynn Jerome, who was murdered on Thanksgiving night. Now, this is the third November killing we've talked about. 1984. Right. Her beaten and raped body was found lying in an alcove of School 33 on Webster Avenue at the kindergarten entrance of the same school that Michelle Mayenza had attended and was walking home from at the time of her abduction almost exactly 11 years earlier. And that 11 years is so big that investigators didn't put the two together. And they only fit together if you realize that the 10 years in the middle, Ted Givens in prison. So Ted remains free until September of 1986 when he rapes a little girl in a suburban home following a home invasion and was caught, and he's been locked up ever since. He was in prison until July 5, 2010, when the Department of Corrections couldn't hold him any longer, and he was civilly committed to an institution for the criminally insane where Don and I found him, and I became his pen pal. So I told him I was working on a book about the double initials cases, and since he had at least once stalked and abducted female children in his car, I wondered if he might have some insight into what made the double initials killer tick. And his response was fascinating. First of all, he said he preferred the name alphabet killer. Why he would have a preference, he didn't say. But he said, alphabet killer is correct, double initials killer is not, so I should get it right. He told me that he, he certainly was not the alphabet killer, using the correct name, but since he was getting on in years, he thought it was time that he gave himself a good look in the mirror. So we exchanged letters for a year, and he told me in gruesome detail how and why he had committed the Gates abductions. He drew me maps. He said that he lured the girls to his car with promises of bunnies. He picked up the girls, threw them in the trunk of his car, and closed the lid so fast that they didn't have a chance to make a sound, and no one noticed him doing it. And this made me think of the abduction of our three victims. How could it happen in a public street without anyone noticing? And the answer might be simple. It might be just that it happened very fast. Yeah. I asked Ted if he had any insight into why he was a pedophile. He told me he had it all figured out. When he was 16 and in prison and himself being repeatedly raped by a number of men, he found comfort in a 1960s-style porn magazine. It was uh, a genre called uh, Nudist Colony Magazine. And these were magazines that showed pictures of nudist colonies of men, women, sometimes whole families doing wholesome activities, all stark naked. Now, in one picture, there was a family lounging by the pool. Ted told me that in that photo, there was a 10-year-old female lying naked beside the pool, and that photo seriously got under his skin. And later, when he was out of prison, he frequented dirty bookstores seeking that particular magazine with the photo of her, capital H, capital E, capital R. And when he saw a little girl that resembled the one in the photo, he had trouble controlling himself. And that was what happened to him when he was in that Gates Park. So, if and and again, Ted's DNA does not match that found at the Wanda Walkowitz crime scene. We don't know if it matches Michelle Mayenza's crime scene. And he was in prison for Carmen Cologne. But we, I think he did tell me what made the double initials killer tick. I think that's exactly what made him tick. He, he saw his, the killer of Wanda and Michelle saw these events as little dates. 
as in a you know a man and a woman going out. He he took them out to eat. He fed Wanda custard. He took Michelle out for for a cheeseburger. And uh, when things didn't go well, uh, he had to kill them to get rid of the only witness to his misdeed. In the research for this book, you contacted all family members like uh, Gigi Mina, Carmen's uh, yes. mother, and some of the family members. Dory, very interesting when you get a translator to, because she wants to be interviewed in Spanish, and you have a, part of your team, Deb and Christina, uh, and along with uh, Tubman. But uh, these people go and interview uh, Gigi Mina, and she, it seems, uh, at least what the, from the book, that she is uh, lying about certain th- certain things that she's being questioned about. What do you make of that? Because you don't really conclude I'm, anything. I'm in not that. certain that Carmen's mom is lying as much as she's being very productive. She's very protective of her family. She spent uh, her entire life pretty much under siege because of what had happened to her little girl. And also, I think that to some extent, uh, her memories are selective. You know, she doesn't remember that drugstore being around the corner. She's mistaken it for the uh, candy shop that was across the street so that, you know, Grandpa Felix could watch Carmen from the front of the house. But he couldn't because uh, the drugstore was around on Main Street. Um, They... Both Carmen's mom and her sister insist that Miguel Colon never went to Puerto Rico, he, he, although they admit that he didn't show up when the rest of the family did for the police interviews. Right. Um, and that he used the excuse that he had done something wrong as uh, a reason for, for not cooperating with the police. But the whole part, you know, well-documented manhunt of Rochester police and Puerto Rican police looking for Miguel Colon in, in, in the jungles of Puerto Rico, uh, it doesn't exist to them anymore, if it ever did. So I don't know how much lying there is, but there's, there's selective memory and some just false notions getting mixed in. Right. Now, as people asked you at uh, Scottsville, once upon right. a time, not so long ago. What's next for you from here? What What's next after this investigation? What's next? Well, Don and I have been working on another uh, notorious cold case in the Rochester area, uh, murder of Jack King and Cherise Smoyer in 1963 in the town of Penfield. Uh, these were two kids. They were, they'd been dating during the summer, and they went to a drive-in movie. The movie was Mutiny on the Bounty, uh, three hours long. So Shree had a special curfew, and uh, they were found the next day on a lover's lane in the middle of nowhere, um, shot, both shot in the back, and Shree was bludgeoned. There was a, there was a um, damage to the car which has made some people think it might be a road rage incident. But uh, we're, we're still looking for guys who might have had a crush on her who might have happened upon her on a date with another guy. Right. It's because uh, the, they, the, the lover's lane that they were found on was so remote that you almost needed to know it was there. And that kind of cuts down on the, uh, on the number of suspects. Certainly. So that's a fascinating case as well. And that I don't know if that's going to turn into a book, but uh, that's that's what we're working on now. And I'm currently writing a uh, a biography of the mobster Albert Anastasia as a um, sequel to my biography of uh, Carmine Persico, which came out earlier this year. Very interesting. I want to thank you very much for coming on and talking about Nightmare in Rochester, the double initial murders. For those that might want to take a look, uh, you have a Facebook page, and where might they be able to get this? Yes, copy yes, yes. Book? yes. Um, the book is available on Amazon Every Place and on the Barnes and Noble website. Uh, in the Rochester area, it is available at the Rochester Institute of Technology, Barnes and Noble, 
and at the Lift Bridge Bookstore in Brockport. Um, and I'd like to just thank you know Don Tubman, who's been my right hand man all along for all of this. Christine Green and Deb Sperling, the, the Spanish contingent, Jerry Warren, Nicholas Fici, Tom and Hannah Baumgartner, uh, and thanks for all their help along the along the way. And hopefully, we've looked at these cases through fresh eyes and given people a new perspective on what happened. Absolutely, it was a fascinating book. Thank you very much for this interview, Nightmare in Thank Rochester. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you very much, Michael. Hope to talk to you again real soon. We have a great evening. Very good. Thanks. Take care. Good night.